really need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And this is Dave Debo. Today on the program, we look at access to food with two different angles. Imagine if you were in need of support and suddenly you were earning $200 less each month. Coming up a little bit later today, a discussion on what happens now that emergency pandemic food stamp benefits are going away. There are people for whom that scenario is legitimate. They will be losing $200. They were using that money to keep up with inflation, but uh, it has now disappeared. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Trina Burris will be with us. She's the relatively new CEO of the United Way of Buffalo and Erie County. And we'll be talking about SNAP and poverty and the working poor in just a bit. But first, a look at community solutions to try and fight the food apartheid on the east side, the lack of healthy food in certain neighborhoods. Rita Hubbard-Robinson is with us. She's a longtime crusader for health and programs to support health. And she has a dream to take an old factory on East Delavan and create a farm and food hub. I visited the site with her and saw what was once a massive facility, but right now just stripped down to steel girders ready to be rebuilt. Um, definitely have to be a visionary to see past the, the rust and the steel, but we've been looking at this space since 2009. Before that dream is realized, though, it looks a lot different now. We're looking at all steel frame. A little bit of the, the, the uh, bricks are left from the face of the building. But aside from that, it is just uh, a, um, a uh, the, the uh, what is it, the, the, the skeleton of an old dinosaur. <laughs> the back end of the several acre site sits across Northland Avenue from the new Manufacturing and Job Training Center. It's boarded by the warehouse that the AKG Art Gallery used for its Northland Gallery when Elmwood was first shut down. An abandoned yellow smokestack still marks the back end of the property. Vertical letters on the stack spell out the word Hudai. Hudai Industries first came here in the 1920s, making shock absorbers and other automotive products. And as we continue our tour of the site, Robinson said that that heritage is really a little bit of an inspiration to her. Uh, that's the time when, you know, Buffalo was booming with... Right. Um, auto hydraulics here and, and over here too this was all like plane they uh, manufactured parts for planes and and um, auto parts and this was like a major um, turn of the century area in terms of uh, manufacturing an industrial hub an industrial hub serving the community serving the community we can do it again and oh yeah she has plans I've got renderings and you know this is really uh, something that we hope we'll be able to, um, you know, make happen. 
describe more of what it would look like. This area here, I, I see again, just open girders. Yeah. But from right to left, there's two big rows of these open girders. Right. That would be the market or the grow area? What happens the, right the here? The market would be all the way to our left. That would be the first. Uh, so you see these steel frames? Yep. The last steel frame and underneath would be the market. It would be that entire side of the building. And everything from the second girder all the way over would be the grow area. And there would be, uh, this would be done in hydroponics. We start with hydroponics and we, we would fold in an aquaculture for aquaponics over time. Um, and it would be um, uh, grow beds, you know, all the uh, horizontal grow beds. This was our initial thought, but we may change and do some in vertical grow beds and some horizontal grow beds all the way up and we will be able to grow lots of lots of food, lots and lots of uh, veg uh, produce. What kind of things can you do hydroponically? Oh, so many, it's like 400, 400 um, different produce. We will probably do uh, something in the leafy green area. Yeah. Uh, that's probably the easiest, uh, but we, we will be open to um, pro uh, producing what the market needs. Uh, and so we've been having conversations about that. I want to give all away, away all the secret sauce. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we would be able to custom and do some things that uh, we know the market wants as well. You said you started dreaming about this in 2009. That's yes. interesting to me. Yes. Because back then, the word food desert was not as prevalent as right. it is now. Correct. I come to this space around uh, health. And uh, my work uh, was at, I was working at uh, Erie County Medical Center at the time, and I was seeing, you know, the impact of uh, poor nutrition um, on the health of individuals. Primarily, I was overwhelmed by so many African-American men coming in, young men, relatively young men with uh, lost appendages, and I didn't understand why. And I, just, I found out that it was uh, complications from diabetes. And of course, we know diabetes can be prevented with better nutrition and diet. And so, um, you know, I, I, it, it took a while. It was a few machinations that I went through to figure out how this could be, could be, could be changed. Uh, we had a farmer's market at Erie County Medical Center to sort of try to figure out how we can have access to fresh fruits and vegetables in this area. Of course, this is the Delavan Grider area, and um, there are no supermarkets in this area. There used to be three supermarkets not too far from here at the Central Park Plaza. Remember, Tops? Super Tops at the center, yeah. And <laughs> For a while, Bellamy's had one, and then there was Figmo's over toward... Right, and, and that's far away. I mean, yeah. Right here at Central Park Plaza, you know, it would be a hike, but you could get it there from here, and the, all of those are gone. The closest would be an Aldi, and Aldi is not really uh, very close. Uh, if you're driving, it could, it could be closer. And then Dash's on Hurdle is a little further out, but it's still, again not a place where you can walk and get groceries. So we built out at ECMC, we built out a farmer's market, and we learned a lot about that. We learned about the, the difficulty that farmers have uh, in waiting around for uh, local residents who have um, you know, difficulty with uh, their own purchases. Uh, you know, that really these are two sectors, the rural community and the urban community who are similarly impoverished and so that, that was a, a real eye-opener and 
Uh, we learned a lot about how just because you build it, people may not be able to come. So we needed a social enterprise. And this, so this area could provide food for, for the marketplace, a retail component to that, uh, to provide uh, fresh produce to restaurateurs, have a, a component of that that's specifically for the farmer's market and uh, be able to uh, provide fresh produce in a, an affordable way to the community. It would also support rural markets, uh, rural farmers to come and be a part of the farmer's market. We could be a food hub. So those that are coming in from um, you know, our, our rural areas could have a, a, a stall here those who are here in our city, uh, who are urban farmers, could have stalls here. And it could be all year round, something that you can um, plan on doing every week of the year, indoor and, and, and indoor-outdoor markets. Would it be a for-profit venture, non-profit, a combination? It's a social enterprise, so it would be we would be looking to create revenue, and those revenue dollars would be used to... Um, invest back into the other projects that we know that we need around wellness and health and other supports for the community. So ultimately you see some sort of wellness education center here as well? Absolutely. In fact, when we ran the farmers market at Grider Street, one of the things that we would always do, particularly during the lunch hour, is have fitness activities and other wellness things right at the market. And we would do that here. We would actually beta test different uh, wellness activities and those that would be appealing to the community the plan would be to in in um, you know implement them in another space whether it will be the, the companion space there to the very corner of Winchester and Delavan or some other area right now you say it's a dream I still see girders <laughs> <laughs> what has to happen well we need funding we need the building actually finished we need investment uh, in the building once the building is done, then we, you know, once we have a completion date for the building, then we are rather confident that we can raise the funds necessary for the equipment uh, and the build out inter internally to the building. So we need a roof, we need walls, we need windows, we need uh, water connections, we need all of that, and then we need all everything in the install for the in inside. So that would be internal walls, lights toilet rooms, running sinks, uh, and um, etc. What sort of time frame do you have? Well, I would have loved this to be done well before now, but and certainly before I retire. So um, uh, I'm hoping that within the next two years, three years, that we, this, would be, that's, this would be a done deal. Rita Hubbard Robinson is with us from New Water and Associates. Her dreams of converting this site is just part, though, of the overall work that she does on health. And for that part of the discussion, we move to her offices, where she works and consults on health projects nationwide. On site, you spoke about the health needs. How great are those health needs? Well, uh, we rival third world countries in our health in, our, in, in the city of Buffalo. Uh, we're one of the, the um, most unhealthiest counties in the state of New York. When you look at the health rankings, we always are in the bottom five. Uh, we rival in terms of areas and cities, uh, the Bronx, and the Bronx is, we, we're always neck and neck with the Bronx, uh, New York. And um, we, if you were to take the city of Buffalo 
in about five zip codes out of the mix that the, the whole county of Erie's health rankings would probably be one of the top five in the state of New York. So we know that the black neighborhoods in our community are suffering from uh, this poor health, these poor health data. Um, we have some of the highest infant mortality, some of the highest maternal, poor maternal health. We have some of the highest diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and um, many of these things that we're uh, grappling with. Some things are not, not in the space of being able to uh, be, be um, changed for improved diet, uh, but certainly diabetes, uh, many of the aspects of cardiovascular disease and, and other, other issues. Uh, certainly uh, there's something called diabetes and uh, we, our children are suffering uh, from juvenile diabetes and um, uh, we just need to get a handle. As Americans, we need to get a handle on our health. I can speak for myself included, but I, but I think that when you don't have access to food, healthful food in particular, we, we really don't understand really the impact of food on your health, and then you don't have access. Those two things in com combined. It's not enough for your doctor to say to you, oh, you know what, um, you're pre-diabetic, you need to reduce your salt and, and, and your sugar intake and your fat intake, and then you go home and you, you can't And the cupboard only has potato chips. And the, and the corner store only has potato chips and, and soda pop, you know, and you don't have a car. That's the two issues that we have most dramatic in our community, and that is east of Main Street, our transportation and access to food. Now, one of the things that I have done, I think that's been somewhat successful, is uh, the Healthy Community uh, Store Initiative to uh, look at the, the corner stores because they exist in the community and to try to create uh, healthful options. Uh, we were able to work with store owners to express to them some of the issues that we're addressing or that we'd like to address in our community. Typically, the corner store wouldn't necessarily have Produce. They wouldn't have produce. They might not have much more than candy. I mean, you know, because when I was growing up, these stores were considered the candy store. Yeah. You know, so they might have milk and eggs, but it doesn't really, they don't really think of themselves necessarily as a place where people can go do their grocery shopping. That's not the typical model of a corner store. So it's a combination of changing uh, the store around a little bit, introducing healthful options, including produce, and then also educating the community. So Cornell Cooperative Extension, we have a healthy food community advocates group that will and does do tabling and they go out into the community assets and, and share information about what foods are healthful. Just because, like I said earlier, just because you build it doesn't mean they're going to come. You have to, there has to be some connection between my experience, my likes and dislikes, and what the information really is. So you, you, you load up the community with the ability to understand what those little call-outs are on the side of the boxes that give you all the nutrition information and what they mean. Who teaches that? How do you learn that? What are you, most of my life, right, I never even looked at that, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you equip people with information and knowledge, help them to understand the impact of salt, sugar, and fats in their diet and how and way, helpful ways in which to change the way we and modify the way we cook items and, and how we think about food that we eat, how much of that food we eat during the day. What is a uh, proper portion? We don't really understand 
portions. We don't understand. We don't have this knowledge. It's not taught. Home ec has been ta taken out of the schools. Uh, we used to get a little bit of, uh, uh, from uh, uh, school. When I was a kid, I made a little apron, you know, mm -hmm. in home ec. You know, those things don't those things don't exist anymore. And so, really being able to equip community with knowledge, uh, helping community to uh, see and understand what's actually happening from this. A ma macro uh, view of the community. Most people think I have diabetes. Um, it just runs in my family. They don't understand that it is a whole section of our city. They don't understand it's everyone in your neighborhood in poor health. They don't understand the connection or the disconnection how these things occur. You, you mentioned home ec and I have to tell a story. <laughs> Back in my high school, the guys took shop, the girls took home ec, and then for one week they'd swap. Yep, I remember that. And uh, the one thing that I recall from my home ec week was making fried donuts. You, 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 you take the, the, the pop and serve biscuits and you dump them in a fryer and you get fried donuts. Not exactly a healthy kind of option. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, that would be an issue for me, right? <laughs> so yeah, that would be important that if we got home ec back into the schools that it would be a focus on uh, cooking in a healthful way. What is the root of the problem? You've talked a little bit about food access. Is it something bigger? Can we trace it in any way to the historic disinvestment of the east side? Yeah, I, I think so. I think, you know, as, we, as I mentioned earlier uh, when we were on site, there used to be three grocery stores in not the closest proximity, but not the furthest proximity to the location that we're dreaming will be this oasis for food. You know, we just had the massacre, this horrible massacre last year, and we see, you know, how uh, the closing of a supermarket can disproportionately hurt and uh, displace uh, individuals who rely on groceries. And this has slowly been creeping in on the east side. There's been a mass exodus of white uh, Buffalonians to the suburbs and to North Buffalo. And uh, as a result of that, the resources have left. Now, we know, unfortunately, in our city, in our area, uh, poverty, the poverty index is really associated almost directly with race and this social construct that really isn't even true. But suffice it to say, it's what we, we, we have to... Wait a minute, go there. Uh, explain what you just found. Well, this is only the human race. I mean, it's, <laughs> there's only one race. It's, if you're not human, then you're an animal, you know, so... Uh, but yeah, these social constructs that we've created uh, to actually dif differentiate us as human beings, as homo sapiens, has caused us a great problem since, you know, slavery. Uh, to the present, and it was really as a result of the of the the desire to create chattel out of uh, out of human beings that have created these sort of racial differences, and really caused people in our country that come to our country to choose black or white, when they when before they got here they were, you know, other peoples, West Indian peoples from various countries, they were European peoples from various countries, and when they got here they got to choose. Uh, whether they were going to associate themselves with a, a racial group that uh, was associated with slavery, disinvestment, and you know violence and terror, 
or whether they were gonna associate themselves with access and success and privilege, right? And this is why systems are so critical to creating change and improving the lives of individuals and how systems uh, systems approach to, to doing the, the work necessary versus putting a Band-Aid on it, just throwing some food at people after a massacre is not quite enough. We have to come up with a different way of thinking. And unfortunately, while supermarkets are important, it's not the magic bullet because people have a lack of income to keep you know the the dollars flowing in a supermarket because a supermarket requires money coming in on a regular basis so they can pay their staff and keep the lights on and keep the products on the shelves and all of that and if you have people who are relying on on uh, their check that comes once a month that is not going to keep the lights on in a supermarket so we get that part so we've got to come up with different models we've got to come up with different ways of looking at how we can uh, address issues of health, address issues of access to health, address wealth creation, and improve what we're what we've got here. And we're sitting ducks, you know, as as we can as we saw on five fourteen. Otherwise, and and some of what I've heard talked about as a systemic solution is ownership. We look at Alexander Wright and the African American Heritage Food Co-op. An idea of not needing a Wegmans or a Tops to invest, but trying to keep money back in the community. We need money to uh, to actually make things work. What what I, Alex and I and others are thinking about is how the everyday things that you need to buy, like food, can create wealth so that it can be invested into the communities that are so greatly in need. So for example, for our project, you know, uh, everybody needs food. Uh, restaurants need food. They pay retail for the food. If they buy it from us, it's fresh, it's local. Uh, why wouldn't they, right? It makes, good, it makes good economic sense for our community. Why enrich, you know, investors, stockholders, when you can invest in the community that's your neighbor? Right? And then those dollars get to focus on teaching around health, cooking classes, hiring staff, expanding and shoring up a project from being just hydroponics into an aquaponics, which means that you can not only get produce, but now you can get fish too. Right. So it's, it's, uh, it's, I think, an opportunity to do the right thing uh, while you're doing what you normally do every day, like eat. I was surprised on site when you said you started to do work in this field in 2009. That's long before this issue really had bubbled to the surface. And, and maybe TOPS pushed it to the surface more in the past year. But 2009 is a long time ago, Rita. I know, I was a lot younger. And it's, y'all, yeah, it is disturbing to me that we've had to wait so long to get to the to where we are and that it really costs lives really to bring uh, this this which I could see, you know, uh, 15 years ago to the surface. Uh, but this has been long coming. You know, I didn't know what it was going to be, but I knew it was going to be something. I thought it was going to be like the price of gas or it was going to be climate change or something that was going to make the cost of food so high. I mean, when you look at California and they are really uh, been suffering from drought for 25 years, and we should not ignore what's right in front of us, right? And so these are the things that were compelling me and, and also the impact 
that the lack of access to food was actually having in real time on my job every day that I would, you know, that I would see. And then, and then I'm looking at, you know, all of the opportunity, uh, you know, vacant buildings and, and so on. So th those were the things that came to mind when I, and, and uh, 15 years ago, thought, oh, this would, be, this would be perfect. Obviously, you're not going to bite any hands that might feed you. But is government now aware of the problem enough to start investing? Was there reluctance prior to this? Did TOPS play a role in maybe some evolutionary change there? Well, I don't know what all of the barriers are, but we do live in one of the poorest cities in the country, and there are a lot of issues and factors that go into that. So I, I can't say that the city wasn't concerned. I can say that the, perhaps the revenue wasn't there. I don't know. I, the state of New York has invested about $4 million in the deconstruction of the building pre-COVID, and of course, there was a pause uh, during COVID. And now it is uh, uh, my understanding that there are some opportunities that will be unveiling soon, and we would be able to get going. Beyond this project, is there something you would really love to see? Well, you know, there's so much tragedy everywhere, uh, and there's just so many uh, obstacles, I think, that people have experience pre-COVID and then COVID and then the massacre. So I would love to see an awakening, A. I think awakening would be uh, phenomenal that we as Buffalonians would all embrace the needs of all of Buffalo. Um, and then, like I said, the bigger thing, the all of the systems kind of coming together and seeing that when you invest in um, east side, when you invest in urban center, when you invest in our children and our future and in our health, it is an investment in business, it's investment in uh, the longevity of our city and uh, tax base and all of those things that come with the health and the development of community. And so it's not either or, it's this and that. Um, we, we know we need to build houses, not houses or uh, a place where food can grow. It can't be the covering of the 33 or investment in housing. It's got to be both. We can make a change. It could be part of a greater change because of the ability to create wealth in it and to set as an example for our children who would walk past this structure, somebody cared about me, somebody cares about me, and I can be whoever I want to be because I'm going to go in here and get an apple. I'm going to go in here and get dinner today. Rita Hubbard-Robinson is the principal of New Water & Associates, a health consulting firm doing a lot of work not only across the country but on the east side of Buffalo. Her proposal for 541 Delavan Avenue needs about 4 to $6 million, and she is awaiting preferred developer status from the city of Buffalo to move ahead with that. We have pictures of what that site looks like. If the tour alone that you just heard isn't enough, go to our website at wbfo.org. Coming up, a continuing topic of food and access to food. Today is the day that pandemic emergency SNAP benefits go away. What does that mean for the working poor? What does that mean? We'll talk about that. Coming up next, Trina Burris is here. She's CEO of the United Way of Buffalo and Erie County. More with her straight ahead. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Are you looking for a rewarding career in public media? 
Visit WNED.org careers to learn more about becoming a part of a talented team dedicated to making a difference in our communities. Employees at Buffalo Toronto Public Media enjoy a variety of outstanding benefits. We are located in downtown Buffalo and we have free parking. We are focused on inclusivity and belonging. Come as you are and apply today. Visit WNED.org careers. Marketplace wants to know, what have you always wondered? We get to the bottom of your economic queries, whether it's how coupons actually work or who writes the tax code. No question is too big or small. Ask your question at marketplace.org wonder. You might just hear it answered on the air in our series, I've Always Wondered. Weeknights at 6.30. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And this is Dave Debo. For the balance of the program, Trina Burris is with us. She's the relatively new CEO of the United Way of Buffalo and Erie County. We're talking in general today about the working poor, about poverty, but also an event happening today that probably is going to change the landscape for the people that we fit into those categories. Who are those people? We'll get there. But first, Trina, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Dave, so much for having me. Let's start with the talk about these SNAP benefits. During the pandemic, they were increased for some families as much as $200 a month. That was a temporary thing for the sake of that pandemic. Now, after a year, a year and a half, it goes away. So I'm picturing a household that is suddenly having to survive on 200 less a month. What's that look like? So, so Dave, you, you point out the problem really well. So since um, April of 2020, families have been receiving increased SNAP benefits um, as a response, of course, to COVID. Um, and now, you know, that's expiring at a time when um, we are all seeing increased grocery store prices. Um, we won't even talk at this point about the other emergencies and situations that have happened locally in our community. Um, but, you know, the reality is somewhere between $95 at least um, to to your point of maybe a couple of hundred dollars mm-hmm. um, in, in change in their food budget. And SNAP, just so we're all playing, is basically food stamps. That's what we're talking about here. Yes. Although that's maybe not the term that they like to use. The government doesn't call it that anymore. Yes. SNAP stands for um, Supplemental Nutrition Nutrition. Assistance Program. Okay. All right. Yes. Yes. And it is used, again, because it is food stamps, it is used pretty much for food stuff. Yes. So the government would say that about 30% of your income should go towards um, towards food. And so um, it's a very co- complicated calculation, but basically if you can't, if your food budget is something other than that um, and you fall within income guidelines, the government would, would see fit um, to, you know, to provide some additional support um, for food needs. Um, and here in Erie County, um, there is a significant 
issues surrounding hunger. And there are many people who are working on that very diligently, Rita Hubbard Robinson being one. Sure. Um, <clears throat> and yet we're still seeing challenges. Let me pose an alternative argument because maybe there are skeptics out there that are saying, hey, this benefit, this extra amount was designated strictly for the pandemic. And yeah, I know that inflation's gone up in the meantime, but this was pandemic money. The pandemic's gone. Why do people still need, he says somewhat rhetorically, why do people still need this pandemic benefit if there is no pandemic? So I guess my counter to that would be, think about how long it typically would take government to address a known issue or issue that they've recently identified. The pandemic for us basically started March 2020. By April of 2020, the government said folks need this additional benefit. Mm. Um, so it was a problem then, right, um, that the government could easily recognize would be exacerbated by um, the pandemic. However, since the pandemic, what has changed for those individuals? Probably not much. Um, the government would set, um, would say that the federal poverty line, for example, for a family of four is $26,200. Mm. Um, at United Way, we we focus on and talk about the Alice population, which are- Asset limited. At, are you going to get a smiley face uh, on your I paper? All, Let's though. see. No, maybe only half a smile. Asset okay. limited, income constrained, employed. There you go. Smiley, poor. Smiley face for I a day. It. Smiley face for a day. Google's amazing, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank God for it. Um, so so those folks are the people that are, are, are in your everyday lives, people who on the surface, you would say, have good jobs. Um, they are working hard every day. And we even um, stray away, Dave, from the term of working poor because they're because they're working hard. And if we and, mm. and so maybe multiple jobs, right, to try to make ends meet. So the Alice level is seventy six thousand nine hundred for that same family of four. I think many of us could see ourselves in that number, in that seventy six thousand dollar number um, and imagine what it would mean to have that kind of disruption to your budget. I uh, I got to say, and I'm sure there are a lot of people that are saying this right now, 76,000, family of four. Right. I was once there. A lot of people are probably saying, oh, hey, that's that's not an abstract. That was once me. Right. Hands should be raising in every car driving around exactly. listening to this right now, right? And so those, so the Alice population that we talk about, so we'll we'll move away from that, from that $26,000 poverty number for a second. We know at United Way, that that Alice population, which represents um, a total of 27% in the county, so that's the Alice population, 13% is the working, um, the, the poverty level. Um, we know that at $76,000, they cannot afford any kind of emergency, no disruption, no blizzard, no 514, no COVID, $400 emergency, nothing. And no inflation, which year to year in Buffalo is about eight, uh, up 8.4%. I think everybody would say, just look at the price of eggs. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, and to take it one step further, Dave, it's not, while hunger is the problem, it's going to creep into other aspects of life. 
So we at United Way focus on financial stability, education, and health. If you don't have access to and the ability to purchase good food, your health is going to be affected, yes? What may be further for folks to understand is it's going to affect education. If the children are going to school hungry, mm-hmm. well, yeah, it's right. Gonna affect when when I'm when I'm hungry, I'm not most effective at work, right? <laughs> the the Snicker bars commercial where that's right. The, mood the, changes, right? Exactly. The, the staff at United Way hates if I don't eat. You know, <laughs> so right. So now think about what that means. They're they're not going to be able to show up well and ready to be educated and and learn from the teacher there's going to be increased behavior problems all these other things so it's not just about the snap benefits ending it's what's going to happen after that after our break i definitely want to get into a broader discussion about poverty maybe what can be done about it if in fact there is something but but let's stay with snap for just a minute longer what do you see as the immediate fallout of this change today well, immediately, um, if folks were not aware slash paying attention, um, they're going to walk into the grocery store and they're going to be surprised, right? Yeah. There's going to be, um, I, I would anticipate, immediate stress um, on the adults leading households, particularly with children. 4.2 million people were lifted out of poverty just simply because of the of the uh, the short term pandemic related benefits that people were given. Say that again. Four point two million. Oh my. Were immediately lifted out of poverty because of some of the things that the government did. The SNAP benefits being one, um, and so that number is going to fall. So four point two million people were 4.2. just pushed back into poverty with this change today. At twelve oh one today. Mm. Right. Philosophically speaking, that's literally what we're talking about. And that's a nationwide number. That's a nationwide number. Okay. What do you picture happening at all the agencies you work with? Food pantries, uh, soup kitchens. They are going to see increased numbers for sure. Think about during the pandemic, there were some members of the population who were who were seeking food assistance from pantries, et cetera, for the first time ever in their lives. That's going to that's going to continue to elevate the response. There's going to need to be some sort of response to that. Are we ready for it? The the jury's out. That was going to be my next question. What what is the what is the community capacity here? We saw it expand certainly after the Tops massacre, but that was a short lived and b geographically limited. Well, I think the the good news is we live in a community where we tend to care about our neighbor. Um, one of your questions earlier, though, does get to how we how we feel about or maybe even stigmatize people that are getting these sorts of benefits. Um, but the reality is we are a rich country and we are a community with some level of resource. Um, and, and those of us in the human services field, you know, we'll, we'll need to grapple with this pretty, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So the the change in the people's paycheck or, or, or SNAP benefit is immediate, and the trickle down to all the agencies is also immediate. Immediate, sure. 
Mm. Yes, yes, because folks, th- going back sort of to that Alice population, right, they're making decisions every pay. This is not living paycheck to paycheck. That's how we describe it. Yeah. But it's more um, pervasive than that. It's that, you know, in the in right now, they're deciding, am I going to pay for health care or put gas in my car? Am I going to pay my rent or buy groceries? So this is only going to exacerbate all of that. But that is a common everyday discussion happening in households in our community right now today, this if-or. And again, I I go back to the idea of community capacity. The United Way, obviously, we know of the the campaigns each year and the money you raise. Mm -hmm. But as a planning agency, you also do a lot of needs assessments. Um, Are we ready for this? So – to, I think we're data led. We're, 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 we believe in the data um, and we want to use our hearts to respond to it. Um, everything has its limitations. Uh, organizations, including United Way, will do their best. The, um, the philanthropic community will, will respond in the best way that they can. Um, as you mentioned, United Way runs an annual campaign. This is the last month of it. Um, and, uh, you know, the need, what we've been seeing in the 20 months I've been at United Way, is historic. We're, we're seeing a 30% last year, 30% increase in the request coming from nonprofit agencies for the dollars, the grant dollars that we give out every two years, a 30% increase. Are those requests coming from any particular area or particular group? Can we say it's all food related or it's all health related or I, I, it's e, a, all of the above. It's, it's yeah, yeah, it's across the board. I would say the data that we capture, the applications we capture, are financial stability, health, and education related. Um, and so, you know, it's all cyclical and interdependent. You don't have a problem with one without having a problem with the other. All right. Trina Burris is with us. She's the CEO of the United Way. You heard her say 20 months on the job. 20 months. So you're not quite as new as I thought. Well, three months on the CEO. Oh, I see. Okay. Two, two months and a week, I guess. All right. If we're, if we're counting, Dave. I don't know that we are, but no, if we, we are. we are not. Yes. Trina Burris and I will uh, talk more a little bit about this when we come back. We're going to look at poverty. We're going to look more at Alice. And again, we're going to look uh, at, at what the needs are out there. Part of the reason why we're talking about this today is, again, today is the day that the SNAP benefits that were expanded during COVID are now unexpended back to rates of a couple of years ago at a time when inflation has gone up 8.4% year-to-year in Buffalo. We'll be right back. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Don't miss Fresh Air with Terry Gross, weekdays at 7 p.m. on WBFO. Learn more about the flamboyant founder of the Roycroft Artisan Community in the WNED PBS production, Albert Hubbard, an American Original, now on YouTube. He needed to be an original, which meant some people are going to dislike what you do, what you say, who you are, ego, your way you look, the way you talk, and that was okay with him. Hubbard's story is one of love, art, and controversy set against the backdrop of the arts and crafts movement at the turn of the 20th century. A movement that railed against the dehumanizing effects of modern industrialization. Watch Albert Hubbard now on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel. Looking for something great to watch on TV tonight? Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule. 
To find out what's on WNED PBS. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And Trina Burris is with us from the United Way of Buffalo and Erie County. Earlier in the program, as we're talking about this uh, decline or this uh, decrease in the SNAP food stamp benefits, there was a point where you said so many people can identify with Alice, not necessarily with poverty, but with this asset-limited, income-constrained, employed. And I, I know people, you say they don't like the word working poor, but to me those two words do sum it up maybe easier than A-L-I-C-E. So who are the working poor? Do we have numbers on their age or their race or... I, I don't even want to say typical because typical is probably not something that applies in this case. But who fits this category? So there are so there are a combination of factors, um, as you pointed out, age being one. So in the Alice population, um, there are individuals, both black and white, that are living at this at this level from a, a race uh, lens. You're talking about roughly 37% or something of the county um, that are black, maybe another 26 or 30% or so that are white, um, and the other uh, races sort of follow, you know, around that mm -hmm. same 37% Hispanic, et cetera. Um, one of the things we look at across the county in terms of Alice concentration Right. So we have this Alice map of Erie County that we look at. And one of the things that we really want to point out about it is that no place across the county, including in affluent communities, is the number zero. Mm. Now, sure, in the city of Buffalo and the rural communities, it's significantly higher. Right. Um, 60% or, or more. Yeah. So, uh, I'm looking, at, look I'm looking at, at that very map right now. Yep. Buffalo 63, I think that leads it. But I see, stereotypically, we think of Clarence as rich. Yes. Clarence has 20%. Exactly. At, uh, at the Alice threshold or, or below the Alice threshold. Um, we obviously think of the rural poor. Mm -hmm. Collins has 43%. That I think we could have predicted. But uh, Aurora. 28%. Again, okay. a community that's sometimes seen, granted there are rural areas there, but it's a community that's sometimes seen as as being richer. Newstead, 36%. Grand Island, 26 Tonawanda, 40 It's It's all over. Right. So again, so to, to your quick research, right, it's not even that it's not zero. It's not even small. Everything is double digits. So for me and the folks at, at United Way, it's so critically important for us to keep communicating about Alice in a way that everybody knows it's not just one segment. It's not one group. It's the entire county 
that's being faced with this. If if we think about 514, I mean, some of that is because we're at the top of the wrong list, yeah. right? And so um, anytime something um, happens largely, like what we're talking about today, SNAP, um, our yeah. entire county is going to be affected. Yeah, uh, there there is no zero on the map. I think the lowest number I see here is Orchard Park, mm-hmm. but that's still 24%. Right. That's, That's right. one person out of every four. It's all statistically significant. Yeah, exactly. Right? And so who, who, are, who, you know, we can look at the numbers and the percentages, but who are they? They're your bank tellers. They're your, the, the people you rely on at your doctor's office. They're your teachers. It's people that you would look at, generally speaking, and say, these folks have good jobs. They're fine. They're not, not fine. They're working multiple jobs to try to make it It's not the meet. stereotype of... The kid at McDonald's or the single mom right. or or any of those preconceived right. Right. notions. It's some of that for sure. And maybe it's higher in those demographics for sure. But it's not zero. Why the focus on Alice instead of a focus on poverty? And again, in the earlier segment, Rita Hubbard Robinson was saying, you know, so many of these questions are not either or. We can support food equity and we can support uh, a stadium. We can support food equity and we can support uh, paving in or, or, or covering the Kensington. So I know that, that your answer is probably, hey, Dave, it's not either or, but why is it necessary to look at Alice instead of just looking at poverty or to look at the two of them together? Yeah. In, so I agree with Rita a thousand and ten percent, as you would suspect, Dave, right? Yeah. In my opinion, if this is going to take Alice and, and the and the folks living in poverty make up forty percent, that means sixty percent conceivably are okay, right? But that sixty percent and even the forty, so a hundred percent of us have to understand and see ourselves in this issue. Because if you don't subtract yourself from it, you're more likely to be aware of it. And your behaviors would indicate it to be so. Um, and so that's that's what we need. You know, before I started working at United Way during in my banking career, I I was obviously very focused on the financial stability of folks. I considered myself to be a fairly aware individual. Um, I can tell you when I walked in the doors for my first day, I said, I don't know anything. Mm. I am not aware at the level that I need to be or I should be um, as a leader in this community. Um, And so when we talk about this, Alice, um, and this 40%, it's with that in mind that we all need to be aware. This question is one that I probably shouldn't have left toward the end when there's only five minutes left. (laughs) Grab your shoehorn. We're going to try and fit the topic I'm going to buckle my proverbial seatbelt. what what can be done? And I know again that, that that question is so much larger than the amount of time we have left. Yes. But but talk a little bit about solutions. So solutions are very important, right? So the first thing, when you think about um, equity, as much as we do inside the walls of the United Way, equity being about access, access to information. If folks that are listening to us today need more information or more help about this topic or or something else, um, they can do one of two things. They can go to the United Way website to take a look at, um, you know, at the information we have there. If you are a person that's in need of assistance 
whatever it is, we call 211, the non-emergency emergency number. Um, 211 is a strong referral source um, for individuals who are facing things such as food insecurity, income issues, mental health issues, that sort of thing. How, take me through that. How does that work? I call up and say, hey, I've, I've got a problem. Uh, and and automatically, depending on the problem, there's someone out there that can give assistance? There's someone on, that will answer that call 24 hours a day that will provide you with information about resources that are available. Um, 211 um, is a program of United Way. It ho- When you call, when folks across the, our, our uh, geography call, we're capturing all that data, right? And some of that data that's sitting inside of 211 is informing what the organizations, United Way and sure. others, are doing and, okay. and help us identify what the problems are um, being faced in our community. Um, I got you a little off off topic, though. Um, access to resources is part of the equation. What else is there? There's also, you know, that for employers, you need to be thinking about the fact that your employees are having these issues. These folks are your employees. Um, there's a program at United Way that we're happy to have conversation with employers to help them to help their employees through some of these things. Um, it's called Work-Life Solutions. Um, it's those th- that thing, you know, that prevents employees from showing up the way they want to and the way the employer needs them to. And again, about access to resources, um, you know, to help them solve some of these problems. Some folks don't even know that they're eligible for, for assistance such as WIC. Um, and so, you know, so if you're called 211, 211 would walk you through that, mm. tell you what, you know, what to do and where you can receive help. And it, it would also say, hey, the pantry down the street is at at 123 Main or whatever. It, that's exactly right. It's all okay. that. It's really tangible information. It's not just philosophical, oh, here, call this place. It's it's really digging deep into what the problem might be. More strategically, does government, does uh, all the philanthropic community, does the United Way, do any of those groups have something they could be doing that they are not necessarily doing? I don't know if it's a question of not doing. Um, not able to is not, probably what you right, would say. It's bar- right. We all have barriers. Um, however... We all do, um, I think, a yeoman's job in trying to talk to one another about what, okay, government, what is it that you can do? What's the role of United Way in the ecosystem? Philanthropy, what's your role? Um, And trying to figure out how if we are, if we all agree on the problem, and I think we do, we all agree and are aware of the problem, um, we then together can figure out some solutions. Some of that will come in the form of, you know, monetary contributions from philanthropy, um, and some of it will come from thought leadership. Um, But the reality is, all of it needs to happen, and we're going to be we're going to be uh, dealing with this sooner rather than later. Is there a policy change that might be needed, uh, other than not not taking away the SNAP money we've been talking about? Is there a policy change needed at the federal level? There there needs to be um, more investment in child care, transportation, and housing. I know we're talking about food, mm-hmm. but again, all of these issues are all interdependent. Um, and so um, so there needs to be a focus and an increase and an acknowledgement at the federal level um, that these issues are, are at play. All right, Trina, thanks so much for your time. 
Thank you so much for having me. Trina Burris is the CEO of the United Way of Buffalo and Erie County. She mentioned their website earlier. That's UWBEC, United Way, Buffalo, Erie County, dot org. And if you open that page up right a little bit down, you'll see a big yellow resources banner. Their resources page is pretty extensive. So again, that's UWBEC. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo. W-O-L-N-O-L-E-N and W-U-B-J Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening.